Section 23 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Berganza, Chapter 1, Part 5. Some little diversion was, however, made in Catherine's favor by the arrival of the Queen Mother Henrietta, and the necessity, which both duty and affection imposed on the king, of paying her the respect of going with his court to welcome her at Greenwich, as the declared object of the Queen Mother's visit was to offer her congratulations to the king and queen on their marriage. It was impossible for Charles to do otherwise than to present his bride to his mother in proper form. A temporary cessation from hostilities on his part appears to have taken place on this occasion, and he even paid Catherine the compliment of sending the royal carriages to fetch the Conde de Ponteville, Don Pedro de Correa, and the Portuguese ambassador and his son, to join the cavalcade. The two latter excused themselves on account of illness, having fallen sick from vexation at the ill-treatment they and their princess had received from the good-natured monarch of England, but they were wonderfully comforted by this mark of attention. The royal pair set out after dinner, July 28th, to pay their first state visit together, attended by a brilliant train. Queen Henrietta, who awaited their arrival at Greenwich Palace, received them at the first door, after they had ascended the stairs. Queen Catherine offered to kneel and kiss her hand, but the Queen Mother raised her in her arms, with great affection and many kind expressions, and kissed her several times. How consoling must this truly maternal reception have been to the friendless, neglected, and almost broken-hearted bride of the royal Henrietta's son! Nor was this all, for as soon as they entered the presence chamber, the Queen Mother told Catherine, to lay aside all compliments and ceremony, for that she should never have come to England again, except for the pleasure of seeing her, to love her as a daughter, and serve her as a queen. It is easy to imagine that the queen mother intended, by this speech, to convey to the time-serving courtiers, who had treated their royal mistress with contempt, when they perceived that she was despised by the king, an intimation of the deference and respect with which the wife of their sovereign ought to be treated. Catherine responded with all the gratitude and pleasure such conduct was calculated to excite, especially under her peculiar circumstances, which made the kindness of her august mother-in-law doubly precious. She told her majesty how much delight she felt in seeing her, and assured her that in love and obedience neither the king or any of her own children should exceed her. The queen mother then sat down in a fauteuil at the right hand of the queen, who occupied another. The king sat on a tabaret, the Duchess of York on another, and the Duke of York stood. All present kissed the queen's hand. The queen mother offered them the refreshment of a collation, or afternoon luncheon, as it was termed, which was declined, they having dined so shortly before they left Hampton Court. The visit lasted four hours, during which time the Queen Mother treated Queen Catherine with every mark of kindness and esteem. On their return to Hampton Court, the Queen supped with the King in public, to the great joy of all who saw them. A temporary reconciliation, perhaps effected by the good offices of the Queen Mother, appears indeed to have reunited the royal pair at this auspicious period, for we learn from our Portuguese authority. 
that the following day the king went to London, and in the evening the queen, accompanied by her household, went to meet his majesty on the road, a gallantry which the king so highly appreciated that he expressed his pleasure most heartily, which was much applauded by the court. When the queen mother came to return their majesty's visit at Hampton Court, the king went to meet her, and on her alighting, led her by the hand to the top of the staircase, where the queen, who was awaiting her arrival, came to receive her. After the first greetings were exchanged, they passed through the antechamber, and the two queens seated themselves in chairs under a rich canopy. The queen mother was on the right of the queen, and the Duchess of York a little removed on the left. The king and the Duke of York stood, and either one or the other acted as interpreters between the two queens, for Catherine could not speak French, nor Henrietta Spanish, much less Portuguese. The king and queen dined in private with the queen mother, the first day of her arrival at Hampton Court. In the afternoon, the Duke and Duchess of York joined them in the queen's chamber, where they were regaled with the performances of Her Majesty's band, which, bad as they were, the queen mother was so good-natured as to applaud. The royal party remained together at Hampton Court till the 23rd of August, the day appointed for Queen Catherine to make her first public entrance into the metropolis of her new kingdom. On this occasion, she embarked in her royal barge with His Majesty, the Duke and Duchess of York, Prince Rupert, his brother, Prince Edward, and the Countess of Suffolk, the First Lady of the Bedchamber to the Queen. The ladies and officers of Her Majesty's household were in another barge. The two Portuguese countesses did not accompany their royal mistress, being indisposed. The shores were lined with soldiers and people of all degrees. When they were within eight miles of London, a larger vessel, which could not proceed higher, was in waiting to receive the royal party. This vessel had glass windows, and a crimson awning bordered with gold, for the ladies of honor and other attendants. At Putney was another barge, in which their majesties were to make their public entry. In this were four and twenty rowers, clad in scarlet. The royal arms were painted on her sides and bow. She was gorgeously gilded, with an awning of gold brocade, fringed within and without. Both Evelyn and Pepys have given lively descriptions of this royal aquatic progress, as it appeared to one from the river, and to the other from the roof of the banqueting house at Whitehall. I was spectator, says Evelyn, of the most magnificent triumph that ever floated on the Thames, considering the innumerable boats and vessels, dressed with all imaginable pomp. But above all, the thrones, arches, pageants, and other representations, stately barges of the Lord Mayor and companies, with various inventions, music, and peals of ordnance, both from the vessels and the shore, going to conduct the new queen from Hampton Court to Whitehall at her first coming to town. In my opinion, it far exceeded all the Venetian Bucetoras, etc., on the occasion when they go to espouse the Adriatic. His Majesty and the Queen came in an antique-shaped open vessel, covered with a state or canopy of cloth of gold, made in the form of a high cupola, supported with high Corinthian pillars, wreathed with flowers, festoons, and garlands. I was in our new-built vessel, sailing among them. Pepys notices that there were among the pageants a mimic king and queen, the latter sitting very prettily with her maids of honor at her feet. The daughter of Sir R. Ford, the Lord Mayor, was supposed to be the young lady who personated her majesty. Anon, continues he, came the real king and queen in a barge, under a canopy, 
with a thousand barges and boats I know, for we could see no water for them, nor discern the king and queen. At six o'clock in the evening, they landed, under a royal salute from the great guns on the other side, at Whitehall Bridge, on a pier which had been erected for the purpose near the palace, where the queen mother, with her court, and all the nobility, male and female, in the richest dresses, waited to receive them. Lady Castlemaine, up to that date, had not been received by Queen Catherine, for instead of being, where her unparalleled effrontery impelled her to wish to force herself, in the royal cortege, she was merely a spectator of the splendid pageant, of King Charles conducting his bride to Whitehall, amidst the shouts and acclamations of the people. A series of feasts and rejoicings welcomed Queen Catherine on her first arrival in the metropolis, yet in most instances, they must have been embittered by the presence of her insolent rival, who, in the course of a few days, was to be seen not only in the presence chambers, both of the queen consort and the queen mother, but was even introduced into Queen Catherine's coach. On the 7th of September, Pepys says he went to Somerset House, where he saw the queen mother, with Queen Catherine sitting on her left hand, whom he had never seen before, and though, pursues he, she be not very charming, yet she hath a good, modest, and innocent look, which is pleasing. Here I also saw Madame Castlemaine, and which pleased me most, Mr. Crofts, the king's illegitimate son, a most pretty spark of about fifteen years old, who I perceive to hang much on my lady Castlemaine, and is always with her, and I hear the queens are both mighty kind to him. By and by, in comes the king, and anon, the duke and his duchess, so that they being all together, was such a sight as I never could have happened to see, with so much ease and leisure. They stayed till it was dark, and then went away, the king and his queen, and my lady Castlemaine and young Crofts, in one coach. Such were the companions with which Charles compelled his consort to appear in public, when she had been his wife scarcely more than three months, as if for the systematic purpose of degrading her, in the opinions of his subjects, to the level of those with whom he was base enough to permit her to be seen. If the young queen had been as regardless of his honor as he showed himself of hers, with what justice could he have complained? The king and queen were very merry that night, and he would have made the queen mother believe that Catherine was likely to bring an heir to England, affirming that she said so. The young queen was shocked at such an assertion at that early period of her wedlock, and without being perhaps aware of the strength of the expression, she used in her haste to contradict the audacious declaration of her royal lord. She exclaimed, You lie! Being the first English word, observes Pepys, I ever heard her say, which made the king good sport, and he would have made her say in English, Confess and be hanged. Spanish was the only medium of communication between Charles and his Portuguese bride for the first months of their marriage. This, as it was not the natural language of either, might literally have been the cause of some of the misunderstanding between them. All the curtain lectures which Catherine addressed to her lord on the subject of Lady Castlemaine and his threats and sarcastic rejoinders were carried on in that language, they having no other means of rendering their nocturnal altercations intelligible to each other. He complained, when angry, of her disinclination to study English, but in moments of good humor, when he chose to amuse himself by playing the instructor, it was his delight to impose on her confiding innocence, like a rude schoolboy, 
by giving her lessons in the vulgar language. But although Charles occasionally condescended to playfulness with his poor little queen, his conduct as husband was at this very period worse than ever. In a portion of the deciphered correspondence, Clarendon writes thus to Ormond, All things are bad with reference to Lady Castlemaine, but I think not quite so bad as you hear. Everybody takes her to be of the bedchamber, for she is always there, and goes abroad in the coach. But the queen tells me that the king promised her, on condition she would use her as she doth others, that she should never live in court. Yet lodgings I think she hath. I hear of no back stairs. The worst is, the king is discomposed, in other words, dissipated, as ever, and looks as little after business, which breaks my heart. He seeks satisfaction in other company, who do not love him as well as you and I do. There is something infinitely pathetic in this last sentence. The heart of Charles had been indurated beyond its natural obduracy, since it had been in the possession of the iniquitous woman whom he preferred to his wife, or he must have been touched by the true affection of the faithful friends of his long adversity. Meantime, Lady Castlemaine came every day into the queen's presence, and the king was observed in perpetual conference with her, while the queen sat by neglected, and if, unable to conceal her anguish at the indignity, she rose and retired to her chamber, only one or two of her immediate attendants followed her, but the rest of the court remained, and too often said aloud, things which no one ought to have whispered. The king, who at the beginning of the conflict had worn a troubled countenance, and sometimes appeared as if he wished he had not gone so far, still chaffed by the reproach of being governed, which he received with the most lively indignation, and was generally taunted with it most by those who aimed the most at governing him, now seemed as if he had overcome every tender feeling towards his luckless wife, and assumed an appearance of excessive gaiety, which close observers thought feigned and unnatural. However, to the queen it seemed very real, and it increased her sadness when she saw a universal mirth in all company but hers, and in all places but in her chamber, her own servants showing more respect and more diligence to the person of Lady Castlemaine than to herself, because they found it was in the power of that bold bad woman to do them more good than their wrong and neglected queen. Pepys, who in his diary briefly but shrewdly notes the signs of the times, on the 14th of September, went into the presence chamber at Whitehall. Where, says he, I saw the queen as I did last Sunday, and some fine ladies with her, but by my troth, not many. Charles now declared his fixed resolution to carry into effect his oft-reiterated threat of sending back the queen's Portuguese attendants to their own country, and appointed a day for their embarkation, without assigning any particular reward to any of them for their services to the queen, or vouchsafing to write any letter to the king and queen of Portugal of the cause of their dismission. This rigor, pursues Clarendon, prevailed upon the great heart of the queen, who had not received any money to enable her to be liberal to any of those who had followed her to England with the idea of good preferment in her household. And she earnestly entreated the king to permit her to retain some few who were most necessary to her, and that she might not be left wholly in the hands of strangers, and employed others to make suit to him for that purpose. Charles, as a great favor, permitted the Countess of Penalva 
who had been with her from infancy, and who was nearly blind, and in consequence of her infirm state of health, seldom stirred out of her chamber, to remain. Also the cook, two or three of the servants in the culinary department, and the priests and ecclesiastics who officiated in her majesty's chapel. It is a matter of necessary policy to dismiss the train of foreign attendants by whom a royal bride is accompanied to her husband's court, as they are sure to be regarded with ill will by a jealous people. Every preferment they receive deteriorates from the popularity of the queen, and if any disaster occur, it is considered attributable to their evil influence. Catherine, who was as ignorant of all state affairs and historical precedents as an infant, was not aware that it was a trial to which other queens were exposed, and felt not only of the deprivation of the comfort of beholding familiar faces and listening to familiar accents, but was led to suppose, from Charles's harsh manner of putting this measure into effect, that it was a piece of a special tyranny inflicted on her as a punishment for refusing to tolerate the intrusion of his paramour in her bedchamber. There, however, she came daily and remained for hours with imprudent pertinacity. Her majesty was never free from her abhorrent presence. She thrust herself into the royal coach and went wherever the queen went, to the park, the theater, to the houses of the nobility. She even followed her to mass, though she professed the most vehement horror of the rites of the Church of Rome, and had refused to consider her son by the king a Christian, till he had been rebaptized. the king, meantime, treating all the queen's household, and above all, the English gentlemen who had attended her from Portugal, with such marked ungraciousness, that no one liked to be recommended for appointments in her service. On the 24th of October, Pepys notices that he had these particulars from Mr. Pierce, a surgeon, who further said that her own physician did tell him within these three days that the queen do know how the king orders things and how he carries himself to my lady Castlemaine and others, as well as anybody. But though she hath spirit enough, yet seeing that she does no good by taking notice of it, for the present, she forbears it in policy, of which I am very glad, but I do pray God to keep us in peace, for this, with other things, do give great discontent to all people. If the ill-treated queen had not been possessed of a much greater share of magnanimity and good sense than many other princesses have displayed under similar provocations, she might soon have rendered herself formidable to the king and his advisers, by allying herself with the growing party of the disaffected. The sale of Dunkirk, the insolent carriage of Lady Castlemaine, who was said to influence His Majesty's councils, and the licentious character of a court, at once needy and extravagant, were matters of public reprobation at this period, while the wrongs of an amiable and virtuous young queen were not likely to be regarded with indifference by a generous and moral people. But Catherine bore all in silence, and neither by direct or indirect means attempted to appeal to the sympathy of the nation. The conduct of the king, Clarendon tells us, was regarded with unconcealed disapprobation by some of his most faithful servants, who occasionally ventured to censure him for it, by insinuating how much his own honor was compromised by the disrespect with which the queen was treated, and that he could not reasonably hope for children by her, when her heart was so full of grief, and she was kept in a state of constant agitation and distress of mind. 
Charles could not deny the force of these arguments, to which, in fact, he had nothing to reply, except the example of his far-praised grandfather, Henry the Fourth of France, whose immoral conduct he seemed to consider a sufficient excuse for his own. Notwithstanding this sophistry, he was getting weary of the contest, and it was supposed by many, who knew his character better than his inexperienced consort, that he was about to send the cause of his indifference with her from the court, when, all of a sudden, the queen changed her conduct to Lady Castlemaine. One day, to the surprise of everyone, she entered into conversation with her, and according to Clarendon, permitted herself to fall into familiarity with her, was merry with her in public, and spoke kindly of her, and in private used no one more friendly. This excess of condescension, so sudden and unexpected, exposed Catherine to the censures and scorn of all those who had hitherto espoused her cause. This total abandoning her own greatness, pursues Clarendon, this lowly demeanor of a person she had justly contemned, made all men conclude that it was a hard matter to know her, and consequently to serve her. And the king himself was so far from being reconciled by it, that the esteem which he could not hitherto in his heart, but retain for her, grew now much less. He concluded that all her former anguish, expressed in those lively passions, which seemed not capable of dissimulation, was all fiction, and purely acted to the life by a nature crafty, perverse, and inconstant, he congratulated his own ill-natured perseverance, by which he had discovered how he was to behave himself hereafter, and what remedies he was to apply to all future indispositions. Nor had he the same value for her wit, judgment, and understanding that he had formerly, and was well enough pleased to observe that the reverence others had for her was somewhat diminished." History has echoed the bitter contempt expressed by Clarendon for the queen's want of consistency of purpose, without giving her the slightest credit for her conjugal forbearance, and her wish of conciliating her royal husband at any sacrifice. Far less has anyone paused to consider how far Catherine of Berganza might be influenced by her affection for her native country, which depended at that very time for its political existence on the support of England. It is possible that, among other threats, Charles had menaced his consort with recalling his fleets from the Mediterranean, and that she had been informed that the only means of averting this evil would be to propitiate the woman by whom, to his eternal disgrace, her husband permitted himself to be governed. Strange, says Pepys, how the king is bewitched by this pretty castlemaine. Catherine treated young Crofts, as Charles at first called his boy, with invariable kindness, but was, of course, opposed to his being publicly acknowledged as his majesty's son, and even expressed herself with unwanted violence on the subject, as we find from the following curious letter of her brother-in-law, the Duke of York, to Clarendon. Thursday. My brother hath spoken with the queen yesterday concerning the owning of his son, and in much passion she told him, that from the time he did any such thing, she would never see his face more. I would be glad to see you before you go to Parliament, that I may advise with you what is to be done, for my brother tells me he will do whatever I please. For the Chancellor. Notwithstanding the disapprobation of Her Majesty, Charles created this youth, Duke of Monmouth, 
and gave him precedency over every duke in the realm, except his royal brother, and treated him with such extraordinary honors that it was generally reported that he had been married to his mother and meant to declare him his successor. This might have been attended with serious consequences to his legitimate offspring, if the queen had proved a mother, but the agitation and distress of mind the royal bride had suffered cost Charles the heir on which he had prematurely ventured to reckon. Neglected as she was by her royal husband, Queen Catherine was not without her share of homage as a woman. Waller, the most eloquent of court poets, pays a well-turned compliment to the beauty of her eyes in the following graceful birthday ode, which he composed in her honor, and which was sung to her by Mrs. Knight, on St. Catherine's Day, November 25th, the day Her Majesty completed her 25th year. This happy day two lights are seen, a glorious saint, a matchless queen, both named alike, both crowned appear, the saint above, the infanta here. May all those years which Catherine the martyr did for heaven resign, be added to the line of your blessed life among us here. For all the pains that she did feel, and all the torments of her wheel, may you as many pleasures share. May heaven itself content with Catherine the saint, without appearing old, a hundred times may you, with eyes as bright as now, this happy day behold. Waller again took occasion to eulogize the beautiful eyes of this queen, in the verses which he wrote on a card, which she tore at the then fashionable game of ombre, in some little fit of impatience. The cards you tear in value rise, so do the wounded by your eyes, who to celestial things aspire, are by that passion raised the higher. It was not often that Catherine permitted herself to give way to petulance, even on signal provocations. She appears to have kept the resolution she avowed to Clarendon, when she promised not to give way to passion again on the subject of her rival. Dr. Pierce tells me, says Pepys, that my Lady Castlemaine's interest at court increases, and is more and greater than the Queen's, that she hath brought in Sir H. Bennet and Sir Charles Barclay, but that the Queen is a most good lady, and takes all with the greatest meekness. Catherine felt her wrongs no less keenly than when she vented her indignant feelings in angry words and floods of tears, but she had gained the power of restraining her inward pangs from becoming visible to those who made sport of her agony. When Lady Castlemaine, on entering the bedchamber one day, while Her Majesty was at her toilet, had the presumption to ask her, How could she have the patience to sit so long addressing? Madam, replied the Queen, with great dignity, I have so much reason to use patience that I can well bear such a trifle. The last day of 1662 concluded with a grand ball at the Palace of Whitehall, the company did not assemble till after supper, when that indefatigable sightseer, Pepys, tells us he got into the room where the dancing was to take place, which was crowded with fine ladies. By and by, pursues he, comes the king and queen, the duke and duchess, and all the great ones. After seating themselves, all rose again. The king took out the duchess of York, the duke the duchess of Buckingham, the Duke of Monmouth, Lady Castlemaine, and other lords and ladies, and they danced the brantle. After that, the king led a lady a single coronto, and then the lords, one after another, other ladies. Very noble it was, and pleasant to see. Then to country dances, the king leading the first, which he called for by name, as the old dance of England. 
the manner was when the king dances all the ladies in the room and the queen herself stand up and indeed he dances rarely and much better than the duke of york at this ball lady castlemaine appeared in richer jewels than those of the queen and the duchess of york put together it was whispered that she had induced the king to bestow on her all the christmas presents which the peers had given him one reason perhaps why such offerings were discontinued among other matters of court gossip detailed by pepys we find it was reported that the king reprimanded lady gerard as he was leading her down the dance for having spoken against lady castlemaine to the queen and afterwards forbade her to attend her majesty any more End of section 23.